Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What is the difference between a child and an heir in Roman society, and what role does the Roman household play in the content of Paul's gospel? Why does Paul use two different languages, Aramaic and Greek, to address the father of Jesus? How could a barren woman have more children than someone capable of childbirth? Who are the children of Hagar, and what is the Jerusalem above? Richard and I tackle Galatians chapter 4. Happy Thanksgiving! You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benson. And you are listening to episode 97 of the Bible as Literature podcast, and we're going to jump right into Galatians chapter 4. The people started off as slaves in Exodus. As a non-people, God was not around for centuries. They were on their own. God came in and he said, you're no longer going to be slaves under Pharaoh. I'm going to bring you out of there. I'm going to redeem you from Pharaoh, bring you to the wilderness, and then give you a law my teaching, and then you're going to become my people. Now, just because he calls you out of Egypt doesn't mean you see the promised land because all those people were called out of Egypt, they died in Sinai. So I want to keep this distinction clear. They were nobody when they were slaves. They were created as a people at the time that they were given Torah, given this teaching. But just because they received the teaching doesn't mean that they're now inheritors of the land. The way to think of it, you're a parent who has established themselves, you have a household, you are a reference, you've produced children. As a parent, your children benefit from all that you have, but without you, they have nothing. That's the key point. They are nothing. They don't exist even. That's why in the Arabic language and in Semitic languages traditionally, in the ancient Near East, you are not a reference until you have a son because then you can produce a household. And it's reflected in the name. You're not considered a reference or an adult until you are the father of so-and-so. If you are a child, you are no better or no different than the nanny or the butler. And this is what Paul is saying right at the outset here. And it's a very harsh message toward the pillars in Jerusalem who believe that because they were Jewish, And because they were close to Jesus, that they have some kind of an advantage over the Gentiles. And Paul's saying, no, you're no different than the others. That's the key here. Now, I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. Children and slaves function the same way. So if I came from the outside and looked at a Roman household, and I didn't know anybody there, I would not be able to tell the difference between a slave and a child. Now, I could say, oh, well, the father has blue eyes, and here's some children running around with blue eyes, and there are these dark-skinned children over here. They can't possibly be sons. That's not the case either, because every Roman father decides who his children are. 
he can give his inheritance to anyone he wants. Now, what is the benefit of being a child is that you receive the inheritance of the father. That's the benefit of being a child because when you're living in the household, you do what he says, whether you're a child of his genes or not. And so the dark-skinned child may be a child because they may be the one to receive the inheritance, but the blonde, blue-eyed child who looks like the father may not receive the inheritance, in which case they are not the son. And I want to dispute the translation of the word kirios here in verse 1, because a better translation would be the master. When you have a king and a prince, the prince doesn't own anything. It's a classic line in American literature, you're not king yet. That's a very important phrase, a very important statement. You're not the king yet. This is not your kingdom yet which means that it might not be your kingdom. Mm -hmm. So don't act with such a sense of entitlement. That's what's going on here in the opening verses. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So that yet is a date that will be decided by someone with authority. Not only that, even if you're the child, you may be taking orders from a slave. And in the Roman Empire, where Paul is speaking, you could choose to make your slave your son. That's the point. Genuinos means to put on the knee. So you could be my biological son, and I might say to myself, I want my household to continue. My biological son is an idiot. So I'm going to take this stranger from Ethiopia, who's my slave. He has a head on his shoulders. He would be a much better manager of my household and a much better steward of my legacy. I'm going to put him on my knee, give him a ring, and call him son. And he gets the inheritance. That's right. You could be out like that. This is what people don't understand. That's why when they read Galatians and they go on and on about identity and Jewish identity and Christian identity, they're lost. It has nothing to do with identity. So also we... While we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. And this applies to everybody. He's not just turning to the Jews. He's now also turning to the Gentiles, but it includes both groups. We are in bondage to the flesh. We were enslaved to the pagan gods. And all of this, which is really in Scripture a metaphor for the tyranny of Caesar, the tyranny of Pharaoh. God knew the people were under Pharaoh. And he allowed them to be slaves under Pharaoh for a time until it was time for him to redeem them. And Paul is already breaking down here the idea that there's two statuses of people. There are Jews and there are non-Jews. And he's saying, no, we were all equally slaves under whatever we were slaves to. Whatever God was putting us under, that's who we were slaves under. Later on, he's going to show you that you're telling me that our brothers, the Gentiles, are slaves to their pagan gods under Caesar. But you show yourself to be children of Hagar, slaves to the Egyptian gods under Pharaoh. That's the key point here. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. So here, you, the Jew, were trying to claim a princely status, but the prince was yet to come. And when the prince came to claim the inheritance, then the game changed. Then someone in the household was ready to activate the inheritance of the father. And he was born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And again, the whole letter is addressed to the Gentiles that he's calling them out to receive adoption as sons. So again, he's speaking to the church in Galatia here in verse 5, but he's also turning and speaking to the Jews at the same time. It's a single mechanism for everybody. That's why in verse 6, he says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, which does not mean the father of Jesus is our daddy. That's not what it means. No. It does not mean that you can be uh, cuddly with God the Father. It means that whether you say his name in Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek or Arabic or French or German, he is the one father of all through Jesus Christ. Right. By saying Abba, which is Aramaic, which is the language that the Jews would be speaking, and Pater, which is Greek, which is the language the Gentiles would be saying, the funny thing is, is you're redeemed by God and you say father and then you start hearing the Gentile calling him father too in some other language and you didn't realize that he was actually going to be a son. Like I said before, when you go to the Roman house, you don't know who is the slave and who is the child. Peter and James were presuming to know ahead of time who is a son and who is not a son. And so when he says redeem those who are under the law, again, think of Exodus. They were not under the law when they were under Pharaoh. They were under the elemental spirit, Pharaoh, who was their ruler. But then they were brought into Sinai, and they were given Torah, and they were then under Torah. And then from these people, God chose who would inherit the land. It wasn't the same people. They were the initial flock that he would then choose some out of in order to be the inheritors of the land. Therefore, you are no longer a slave The killer is that he's telling the Gentiles, you're no longer slaves, but he's also telling the Jew, you're no longer slaves. He's saying both groups are in bondage. Both groups still aren't free. Both groups are in need of the promise. Both groups are in need of the gospel. But if you accept the gospel, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. So he's emphasizing again the elemental things of the world. The paganism, the false gods. And here, don't think about it as one religion versus another, which is typically how we think about the biblical showdown with the pagan world. It's not biblical religion versus pagan religions. It's the Bible versus religion, generally speaking. Because religion was a mechanism of state power. Religion was a mechanism of human tyranny in the ancient world. And frankly, it still aims to be in the modern world. And so in order to undermine the power of Caesar and the power of Pharaoh in the minds of the people, Scripture had to undermine their religions. It had to dynamite the whole system. So when the Jews say to Samuel, give us a king, they're already functioning as pagans. That's the point here. Peter is trying to make sure that he's safe. You and I have talked endlessly about the people who desire the checklists to fulfill the checklist so that they're safe. This is what it means to follow those things which are by nature no gods. It is not God that says, make sure you've ticked off this list. Jesus showed how God would redeem those who were under the law. He did not go about checking off a list to keep himself safe. He chose to give up his life so that others could be safe. This is what it means to follow those things that are not God. You want to enslave your brothers to your identity to your religious customs, and to the work of their own hands. That's what you want. 
you want to be greeted in the marketplace as the guy who walked around the earth with Jesus and was this wise Jew, and we have so much to learn from him. No, that's incorrect. You make yourself a god, and you teach the Gentiles how to fashion idols. What you're doing is bringing them with you into bondage. That's all you're doing. I mean, look at the absurdity. You say Christ was crucified and resurrected, and he was circumcised. The important thing is that he was circumcised. No, that's absurd. That's exactly what Peter is trying to do. He's trying to emphasize this one aspect that is really irrelevant. And why is he picking this one thing that's irrelevant? Because he derives his safety and his comfort and his from, status and his status from this elemental spirit. So circumcision functions as a false god for Peter. Correct. That's the key. Functionality. Ontology means when you're obsessed with what a thing really is. There's no such thing as ontology in scripture. This is a Hellenistic concept. Scripture is interested in how things operate, how they function. That's why someone who is scriptural can spot racism, no matter who's talking, and someone who thinks in ontological categories will always view Jewish people and black people as victims and never see the Palestinian or see the person abused by someone who's black. They won't hear Ben Carson's racism against Muslims because in their minds, black people are the only victims. But when you think functionally, you realize that anyone can put on the abuser, just like anyone, Paul argued in chapter 3, can put on Jesus Christ. It's no joke. Peter is trying to say that we're ontologically Christ. If you're ontologically Christ, then we need to make a statue of you for tourists to come and kiss your hand. It's very important. Functionality. We hammer it on the podcast, but I can't stress it enough. It's the only way to free your mind from the tyranny of your intellectual laziness. And I think you can see from Scripture how much people's status changes when people are Gentiles and they're considered as Jews. When you have a Roman father who takes a slave and makes them a child or takes a child and makes them a slave, Scripture's always playing with these statuses. So thinking in your mind that they're fixed is ridiculous if you want to be thinking according to how Scripture functions. But now you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. And this is an allusion to the prophets. In Isaiah, ultimately this applies to Paul, but in Isaiah, God talks about knowing you in the womb and so forth. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? These are the people in the wilderness wishing they could go back to Pharaoh. Well, he's also talking to the Galatians. It feels like he's going back and forth, but he's addressing both groups. He presents his language in such a way that it can be interpreted through the lens of pagan mythology, but also through the lens of Exodus. It's a slap to the circumcision party because they think they're not pagan. And he's saying, well, you are, and you keep giving yourself over to paganism. You observe days and months and seasons and years. You're so terrified of not having enough rain, or you're so terrified of destructive weather or destructive wind. You're so terrified of war that you pray to Baal and you appoint feast days at certain times of the year in order to protect your survival. It's all rooted in fear. And that's why Caesar and Pharaoh wield religion as a mechanism of tyranny against you. Because what they wield is the power of death. If you fear their power or the power of their gods, they own you. It's not the fear of death. Not everybody's afraid of dying. People in the United States are probably more afraid of dying because they have more to lose. But I guarantee you, if you're in Yemen right now, you're not afraid of dying. For you, it would be a gift because of what we've done to their country. 
But it's the power of death, which is the fear of losing the things you have that Caesar does have. He has that power. He can take things from you. He can take away your security. He can take away your prosperity in worldly terms if you give your allegiance to him. This is why Paul is frustrated, because why would the Jews and the Gentiles now, having received the gospel, willingly give this to Caesar? Why? It makes no sense. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I wasted my time. You're like a woman who is abused by her husband and goes back to the abuser after I took you out of that situation. It's like when God brought the people out of Egypt and they wanted to go back to Pharaoh where things seemed so much nicer. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. And here in verse 12, this is the point that I tried to make in the book, that as a Jew and a Benjaminite, he's putting himself in the same category as the Gentiles. Paul is functioning as Christ. That's the point. Just as Christ put himself under the law, Paul put himself in communion with a bunch of pagans. And the double hit is that he's saying the same thing to the Jews. You're pagans also. But I became one of you. I became as you are so that you could then be set free. You didn't do anything wrong to me, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel, an angelos, a messenger of God, as Christ Jesus himself. And this is the point I was making earlier. Where is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. When they saw that Paul was not blessed by God in the physical sense, he was not living a life of prosperity, they were listening to his words and they were living by his words and they were gaining life from his words in spite of the brokenness of Paul's body. And so he's saying to them, look, you understood that the words are what's most important, not the physical state of the body, which is what the James crowd is trying to argue, that the physical state of the body does matter, circumcised or not circumcised. With Paul, he's saying, you saw that the physical state of the body doesn't matter. What mattered is love. You accepted me as Christ, as one broken. You heard my word. I was broken, and you took me in. You received me. It's linked to the care for the needy neighbor. Paul presented himself as the needy neighbor, and they passed the test the first time. They manifested the word he was trying to teach. It's a parallel, right. It's a parallel with the whole argument going back to chapter 1. I laid down the gospel, you accepted it. Now what happened? Why is everybody going back on what they accepted? And now I've become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. And here I always describe this as flirtation. A woman who flirts with you, who wants you to chase her, but doesn't really want a relationship with you. So she wants you to kind of follow her around, but then she shuts you out. But the key thing here about the language of being shut out is that it's not just that you're being shut out from a relationship with Peter and James to be their groupies. You're being shut out of the kingdom, which is what happens in Deuteronomy. It's the same language. You're shut up. You're shut out. There's no place for you to go. And God, through the gospel, is offering you this opening. The genius of what Paul is doing is he is addressing both the Jew and the Gentile because the pillars actually has not just the power to exclude the Gentiles because they're not circumcised, 
but also to exclude the Jew who decides, you know what, I'm going to sit with the Gentiles because they wield the power of clean and unclean and they can say, oh, so you're the Gentile. Okay, you're unclean. Oh, you're a Jew who sits with Gentiles? Oh, sorry, you're also unclean. It's only people who follow things the way that we think they need to be followed who are clean. That is what they are as children of elemental spirits. This is how they function by following their false gods because their false gods are concerned about the cleanness and uncleanness of people and whether they're living up to these standards that are basically arbitrary. I think that's the genius of the letter. And I think that's why when you come to this chapter for the first time, you feel like he's going back and forth. Now he's talking to the Jews. Now he's talking to the Gentiles. But that's kind of the literary play. He's addressing everybody at once the way a father addresses his children. He puts them all in front of him, and he doles out the judgment. But it is always good to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. But here he's saying, it's not good to chase after someone who's using you, or abusing you, or taking advantage of you for their own needs or their own wants. That's why I always tell parents, pastorally when I'm preaching, that if you're a true parent, you don't need your children. If you need your children, you are functionally an abuser. There's something wrong with you psychologically if you're sad when a child doesn't say hi to you. Because if you're an adult, what do you need from a child? This is very important. And it's a fine line because you have to teach children to be respectful. But if you're teaching children to be respectful because you need them to be respectful, to placate your ego or your insecurities, you're an abuser. Not all abuse comes in the form of physical violence. And Paul here is accusing the circumcision party of abusing the Gentiles, of being abusive. Demagogues. Exactly. At the same time, if you are being fatherly, it is good for your children to seek you out. Again, I've hit this many times over the last couple of years on the podcast. It's something I touch on often in my ministry because it gets at the heart of where Americans struggle with authority figures. You know as an American that an abusive authority figure is ugly, and you're right. An abusive authority figure is ugly. But you deal with it by rejecting authority, and that's what makes you foolish. Now, some of you try to get rid of authority by making your authority some kind of platonic ideal. But scripture is telling you platonic ideals don't exist. They have no power. It's things that have material value that have power in this world. And so God in his wisdom takes your fleshly father or mother or teacher or whatever and helps you reinterpret them so that their material power functions as authority for the sake of God's instruction, whether the authority is teaching scripture or not. And that's the key. That's the power of scripture. Because if the authority is teaching scripture, the deference you show authority is to scripture. If the authority is not teaching scripture and just mistreating you, the deference you are showing is to the commandment which says that you have to submit to your oppressor. This is how scripture produces wisdom. And it's incumbent upon me to keep explaining this because until you understand this, you will never get what's happening in the Bible because the whole thing in the New Testament revolves around the Roman household and the father is an inescapable function in the Roman household. 
I'm not even disputing American culture. I don't care. I'm telling you, you can't understand the gospel unless you understand Roman culture and Roman paternity because scripture doesn't just use it as an example. It co-opts it because it works. It's practical wisdom. Authority works. That's the key here. So Paul is saying, I'm wielding the authority of the gospel. You darn well better chase after me. But in this case... I'm not making you chase after me for my benefit. That's the difference. It's for your sake because I have something you need that doesn't come from me. It pertains to God and it's unto life. And when you receive this, you'll be the slave of no one, not even me. Yet you'll function as my slave in the teaching because that's how liberty in Christ works. Otherwise, God would have brought you out of bondage in Egypt and let you build a shopping mall in Sinai. He didn't let you build a shopping mall in Sinai. He said, you're set free from Pharaoh because now you have to be under bondage with me. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Meaning you still haven't gotten the message. I'm still trying to produce you in the gospel. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. So after everything that's happened between us, I don't understand why you still don't get it. Because it seemed like you did get it at one point. That's what's so frustrating. And he doesn't want to be stern with them. I mean, being fatherly doesn't just mean being stern. A true father is stern with his children out of duty in the hopes that they will become his brothers and sisters one day. That they learn. So that they they could become his equals. There's a beautiful Arabic proverb, when your son is a child, you treat him as a child. But when he grows up, you treat him as a brother. But implicit in the proverb is the idea that you give them instruction so that they can grow up. Right, so they can mature. If, as an adult, your children can't relate to you as a peer, you failed as a parent. At the same time, if in relating to you as a peer, they presume that they're equal to you, you failed as a parent. Because scriptural humility is to be able to function as equals without entitlement. And that's what Paul is driving at here. And it's impossible in a capitalist democratic society. Capitalist democracy cannot produce what Paul is producing here through the Roman household. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Again, you claim that you like the Old Testament, but you don't know what it's saying. You're not obeying it. And there's a play here so that our hearers understand that when he says you want to be under the law, do not listen to the law, both these refer to Torah. So one way that people think of Torah is that law that was given at Sinai of all the do's and the don'ts. But Torah is also the story that happens from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy. So there's a play here. Of course. Where, and like you mentioned before, Father, that the law is a character within the story. You want to be under the law, meaning you want to be under the law of Sinai that made the people the people. But don't you listen to the law? Don't you listen to Torah? Don't you listen to the context in which this character appeared in the story at Sinai, this character of the law. Yes, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, the slave, and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. And what's very painful about this verse is that Hagar was a victim, Sarah was an abuser, yet it's the children of the free woman through the promise that are the inheritors. So it's again Paul showing you that God shows no partiality. You're all the same. It's just that he decided by fiat to offer this through Sarah. Doesn't make Sarah better than Hagar. And the way that Hagar bore children was 
by the book. You have a man and you have a woman, they do their thing and they bear a child. Whereas with Sarah, it went all askew. He was not able to have children. She was not able to have children. Not sure if they came together or not. And then she had a baby. That's not by the book. Hagar did everything by the book. Didn't work out so well. Sarah, nothing went by the book. Yet this was where the inheritance went. Which means that it pertains to God. He's the one who makes it work or who decides it's not going to work. He gives life. He takes life away. He makes barren. He makes fruitful. Are you saying, Father Mark, that God can make a rock that's too heavy for anyone to lift, even himself, and then he can lift it? Yes! That's what I'm saying. Which came first, Father Mark, the chicken or the egg? God! (laughs) I mean, that's how Genesis solves it. Don't worry about it. God made it all. Can we get on with it? Philosophy doesn't enter into it. Don't worry about it. You'll be stuck forever with philosophy. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. This is the killer, because Hagar was Egyptian, and he's telling the Jews, you're all children of Hagar with the Gentiles. The people consider themselves children of Torah, children of the law, because they are children of those who heard the law at Sinai. And Paul is saying, oh, Those who are children of the law of Mount Sinai are children of Hagar. This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, a.k.a. Peter, James, and John. For she is in bondage, in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. This was my first glimpse of how the gospel sets us free from sociological bondage. We could spend the rest of our lives arguing who owns this piece of real estate between Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, which is going to end nowhere except in bloodshed. Or we could take a step back and say what really counts here. Suddenly the cross starts to make sense. You begin to realize what it means to die to the flesh, to be crucified with Christ, to give it all up for something that is far more precious and that is open to everybody. That's what the Jerusalem above is. You know, every time someone asks about heaven and hell and then the classic Christian answer is, well, God says there are many rooms in his father's mansion. They think that what that means is everyone goes to heaven, but that's a very shallow interpretation. It means that God can adopt as many children as he wants. Correct. It means that God opens his mansion up to the poor and doesn't matter who you are. He'll find a place for you in his house. It means that God is a father. God is a caretaker. He runs around grabbing his children and saying, get out of the rain, come in my house. And this Jerusalem, the fact that it's of above, means that it goes beyond the way that human beings establish and control institutions. This is an institution that is outside of the hands of human beings. This is an institution that was not built by human beings and therefore follows different rules. This heavenly Jerusalem goes beyond the normal human understanding of life, goes beyond the human understanding of institution, because that is what James' party is trying to control. They're trying to control life and death. They're trying to control institution. That's what ideology is. That's what political Islam is. That's what Zionism is. That's what the military expansion of democracy is. It's what Peter and James are doing in Jerusalem. It's all the same lie. And the key here, Richard, is that the notion of the heavenly city is not Paul's notion, it's Ezekielian. And Father Paul Tarazi argues that the Old Testament canon is woven around the Ezekielian school. And the New Testament canon is woven around Galatians, I mean, around Paul's teaching. 
This is a hallmark. This is the golden thread of scripture, this heavenly city. Now, it's not a platonic concept. It's not an ideal city. It's not like this magical place that's perfect. It's God's city, which is coming in judgment against you. That's why I always try to explain to people when I'm preaching that you have to behave as though this kingdom has already been ushered in because it's coming. And when it does, if you haven't been behaving like a citizen of this kingdom, you're going to have a problem. And that's why Paul is struggling with the people because they seem like they are for a while, then they seem to stop and that sort of thing. A heavenly city is a contradiction. You actually can't build cities on clouds. But that's Ezekiel. And so if you imagine, you close your eyes, picture what the heavenly Jerusalem is. That's not what it's trying to do. It's not trying to have you imagine a Jerusalem that's floating up in the air. Which is what people mean when they talk about heaven now. I mean, everyone's basically a pagan when they talk about heaven and hell. What Paul is trying to do is he's setting up a contradiction, a paradox, in order to dynamite your understanding of what the institution of the city is. And we can see that as we enter into the next verse. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. This is a paradox. You can't say rejoice, barren woman. Why would a barren woman rejoice? More numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. This makes no sense biologically. We glance over these places that are paradoxes that are presented to us as things we can't understand. And rather than having it dynamite and challenge our intellectual process, we overwhelm it with our intellectual process and ignore it and smooth it over. But we what, emasculate it. Right. And so the idea that Sarah could be the mother of a multitude makes no sense. That Hagar would be the mother of a multitude makes sense. But making sense on its own is slavery. This is the slavery of philosophy. This is slavery of Greek paganism. It's the slavery of the elemental things of this world. And going back to Sinai, how do you make a people out of a bunch of slaves? We've tried doing it in this country, and it's very difficult. African Americans still struggle in this country because you don't just say, oh, they're equal. Oh, they're great. Oh, they're elevated. You don't just say it. It doesn't work because the power structure is still there and people who are the children of slaves are still suffering, not as slaves, but suffering as underclass people. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Now that I've evangelized you, you are now children of the promise. You're children of the barren woman. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. This may not be fair, but nowhere in scripture does it say God is fair. That is the point. That is why I always tell parents, you are the tool of industrial America when you go to buy popsicles and make sure everyone has the same color popsicle in a box neatly packaged for families of four and six. No, don't do that. Buy a package of six, give two popsicles to one child, and deny the other child a popsicle. And then all your children will get the message. It's counterintuitive, but it works. Otherwise, if you give each child the same every single time, you're going to raise four Hitlers who are going to expect every time they come to the table to get their fair share. And then they're going to say, as Hitler said, I need a little elbow room. I don't think I have my fair share. Where do you go from there? It's endless. 
and that's self-preservation I need correct as opposed to thinking of what the other needs so then brethren we are not children of a bondwoman but of the free woman thanks very much Dr. Fenton thank you Father the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network